This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Nadia Ellis, and I'm an associate professor in the English department here at UC Berkeley. I'm coming to you here as part of the Townsend Center for the Humanities new program um, about books and reading and conversation that's called, So What Have You Been Reading? And I am happy to be here with a student of mine, Adriana Green, who in a second will introduce herself. But um, I wanted to let you know on behalf of the leaders of the Townsend Center for the Humanities a bit about the impetus for this program. Um, It was conceived because the Townsend Center wanted to spotlight the kind of passion that drives the conversation, the intellectual conversation and community at UC Berkeley, and particularly the way in which that passion is demonstrated as a relationship between a student and a teacher over a particular book. And so we are, Adriana and I, really, really delighted to be apparently, I think, the first in this series, in this new series. And we are thrilled to be discussing Uh Sarah Brooms, (laughs) The Yellow House. Sarah Brooms' The Yellow House, which um, is a National Book Award-winning, extraordinary book that was published last summer, um, and that I had a chance to read just as a person in the world, because a friend gifted it to me uh, last summer, and was immediately captured with and uh, decided to put on the syllabus of a course that I was teaching in the spring. And that's how Adriana and I had a chance to read this book together as part of a course that was co-taught between myself and my dear colleague, uh, Professor Derek Scott, who's a professor in the Department of African American Studies here at UC Berkeley. Uh, Derek and I taught together a course uh, just full of extraordinary and brilliant graduate students, um, amongst whom was Adriana. And uh, we had a chance together to read this book and to study it as part of a sort of collection of books um, on diasporic um, art and and literature. And uh, it was wonderful. And so when I was asked to think about being a part of this program, it was the book that came to mind first. And so I was thrilled that Adriana was able to join me. And um, now I'll turn over to her and ask her to let us know a little bit about her. Sure. Well, I'm very excited. Excited to be here today. Um, my name is Adriana Green, and I am a third year in the African American and African Diaspora Studies PhD at Berkeley. Um, personally, I'm interested in thinking through how the U.S. has conceptualized ideas of the future, and how the Black community has wrestled with, challenged, and navigated those set ideas of of a certain type of future. And I think that actually relates a lot to like the thoughts of time and progress really a lot to what's happening in the book. So I'm very excited to chat about this text because it has definitely, we read it in February and I've thought of it quite frequently since then. So I appreciate the chat. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. And it's, it's, it's really never gone away ever since I picked it up. That's a big part of what I want to talk to you about today. And when mm. we were first thinking about sort of having this conversation and recording it and putting it out on, <laughs> on the internet, um, you know, we were, we sort of batted around some of the ideas and some of the things that made this book hold. And um, I talked about the idea that this book has a kind of architecture to it, right? That it's, mm-hmm. it's called The Yellow House. It's about literally a yellow house that um, Broom's family sort of built together and lived in, in New Orleans East. But that um, magically it is both extraordinarily rigorous as to its sort of scaffolding and structure. And also it has this extraordinary sort of numinous mood, right? It has an interiority. So Mm -hmm. you and I had talked a little bit about this, about this idea of a book having both an exterior and and an interior. And this book particularly having certain kinds of techniques and references that make it um, make it feel as if it has a kind of spiritual quality, a kind of um, um, singularity and interiority that can't quite Mm -hmm. be pinned down. And I think that's Mm -hmm. part of why it seems to linger, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think this is a book you walk through, similar to a house. It um, is. You move through it in, in a very particular way. Yeah. And so maybe that's where I would start. I mean, I, I know we've both pulled some quotes. We want to be able to sort of give people who listen to this a sense of the beauty of, of the piece. And, um, you know, if I were to think about the book having a kind of interiority and balancing interiority with exteriority, I would have to begin with how she thinks about how Brie thinks about New Orleans itself. Right. And about this, mm-hmm. this particular place of New Orleans East, um, which she says at certain at a certain point, very, very early on, you know, she says, New Orleans East is cut off a point beyond a blank space on someone's mental map. And she goes on to say a little bit um, later in the book, and this is a little bit longer, but it feels like it really gets to the heart of what she's doing in terms of the geography of this book. She says, the mythology of New Orleans, that it is a place, always the place for a good time, can sometimes suffocate the people who live and suffer under the place's burden burying them within layers and layers of signifiers or making it impossible to truly get at what is dysfunctional about the city. So the first thing that I think about when I think about introducing people to this book is to sort of point to this sort of twinned dynamic that's happening, right? That on the one hand, she is going to uncover, Broom is going to uncover these layers and layers that make New Orleans and New Orleans East what it is. Everything from, right, canal structure, the sort of, um, the sort of, development structure that made New Orleans East seem as if it were an appendage on New Orleans proper, Um, the management and misuse of the levees, right, which culminate in the disaster of Katrina, right, all of that is going to be rigorously studied and handled. And yet she's maintaining this idea that her particular corner, her and her family's particular corner of New Orleans East is this place outside of the mental map, right? What does it mean to try and capture a place and a feeling and an experience that is deliberately being um, curtailed, right, from from ordinary representation. And the fact that that Broom does not one or the other, but both, right? I think we've we've both read accounts of um, places that are sort of rigorous and historical, but don't necessarily get at the sort of soul of a particular experience. And and vice versa, that we get a kind of particular individualized experience without a much larger sense of the canvas. And it's a kind of magical feat, but Broom is able to do both of these things. And for me, that idea of um, holding a kind of fidelity to a very specific and singular experience of a young person coming into, as you're about to say, I think, self-fashioning, right? Mm-hmm. Coming into their own sense of who they are under the kind of 
arch and branches of a wide and large family tree and holding to that perspective, even as she does all of the rigorous and political work of placing um, the geography of New Orleans and New Orleans East sort of in context, I think is is pretty magical. And, you know, I continue to study this book, you know, as a model of how you can do both of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that's resonant there for you in, in just kind of introducing the book and its, its purpose? Uh, I think just you're, you're talking about layers and how basically she's moving through the different layers that have been placed upon the city, yeah. but also in this way uh, towards this idea of self-fashioning. Um, there's this quote that I didn't know if I would read, but I think I have to now because it reminds <laughs> me so much of what you just said. So um, this is, she's, she's speaking about, about her family and her family's relationship to presenta- presentation, self-presentation. Mm-hmm. So She says, like her mother, my mother buried her rage and despair deep within, underneath layers and layers of poise. America required these dualities anyway, and we were good at presenting our double selves. The house, unlike the clothes our mother had tailored to us, was an ungainly fit. And so there's always this at first I thought we were going to talk about femininity that was, that's what came up in our yeah. in our like sort of behind the scenes conversation sure. uh-huh. but as I read the text I realized it's what we might mark as femininity sort of the sewing of clothes the making of clothes the the keeping of a home the mm-hmm. making of a domestic space translates across the whole family yeah. um so everyone is doing these things and sort yeah. of that quote where she's talking about basically this um, tension between sort of how you present yourself and how the world presents itself upon you or, mm-hmm. or the layers of the world that you're moving through mm-hmm. um, feels like what you're saying that what's happening on the macro level of the city she's also allowing us to see how that's happening on the micro level of a family without yeah. sort of sacrificing either to yes. each other yes and, and no. not over conflating the two Absolutely. I mean, it would be so easy to just collapse them down into each other, right? So that the family is a metaphor for the society or vice versa. And you're right that there is a kind of in precisely in the sort of metaphor of self-fashioning or um, adornment, right? There's this idea that there is a kind of self that one puts on and one takes off. And what's so beautiful about this book and so mysterious about it is that you're able to get to the New Orleans or the home or the broom family that that occurs when the when the veil is pulled back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yet, because there's an emphasis on the notion of interiority, right, in any number of registers, um, you still have a sense that there's a way in which a certain kind of rigorous privacy is maintained um, in mm. this text. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think about this. Where in do a you co- see that most? Yeah, I think about this in a couple of ways. I'm I'm thinking, for instance, about um, the ways in which she renders on the page the distinction between Carl and her mother, Ivory May, uh, mm-hmm. and herself and anybody else. So she mm-hmm. actually has a type of typographical difference, right? There's, an, yes. I, there's italics and actually um, versification that's used to render the, mm-hmm. the language of Carl, her elder brother, and, and her sort of much adored and respected mother, Ivory May Broom. And um, there's a moment when this is a bit of a spoiler for those who haven't read the book before, but um, the yellow house that's at the center of the sort of consideration um, does eventually f- fall down. Um, and there's a moment when, when, when Sarah's told about this by, by Ivory May, and she says this, my mother, Ivory May, called one day, italics. Carl said those people then came and tore our house down. That land clean as a whistle now. Looked like nothing was ever there. And that's it. 
it's it's almost like um, its own pristine little poem. And what I find um, private about this, right, is that everything that the book has been narrating narrating thus far is about the centrality of this structure um, to the lives and identities of this family. It's taken away because of Katrina, which is to say it's taken away because of structural neglect, all right, on the part, on the part of the city and this country. Um, and it's a devastation. And yet um, we're not given access to a certain kind of, um, to the kind of passion that that, with which that family would have felt that devastation. Because yeah. at some level, I think we are to understand that Broom is doing us a kindness by telling us this story in the first place, and we don't get to have everything, right? Mm. So we get a sort of formal poetic rendition of um, a moment in a private conversation between a mother and a daughter. Um, And in its, I think, clean lines and in its um, lyricism and and therefore in its um, slight formal abstraction, I think is a kind of retention of um, the difference, right? Between what it is to be in that family and what it is not to be in that family, to be mm-hmm. a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, another way that I think about that, and we, you and I definitely talked about this, right? Was this um, really clever and fascinating way in which Broom references the fact that she speaks in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we Yes, in that. The, actually, I think it's in the chapter called Interiors. So it's, it's about- in the chapter <laughs> called Interiors, right? So it's like this, yeah, Sarah knows what she's doing. <laughs> and she's very clear that there is an interior and exterior for this house, for this book, and also for her, for her own subjectivity. And um, the, the sort of religious practice and experience of ecstasy, right, of being able to speak in tongues is a wonderful metaphor, without hammering it home, she does this, of what it's like to be vocal, to be voluble, but to not necessarily be um, understood at all registers, right, to retain a certain kind of opacity. I want to find the moment where she says this because it's so cool. Um, Right. This is what she says. Right. So she's thinking about she's coming of age as a teenager. And this book is so good. I know you're interested in this as well. It's so good about the coming of age of a girl who's observing. Mm-hmm. Right. And who's um, discovering what it's like to be herself on the page. Right. It's really mm-hmm. good. at that. And so she she just, again, sort of um, casually sutures together um, that coming of age on the page with the sort of privacy of religious ecstasy. And she says this. Mm-hmm. By the time I was a junior at Word of Faith, I had gained an interiority, a place without strictures where I could live, and that inside space was the room I loved best. Writing, I found, was interiority, and so was God. I spoke in tongues, as did my mother and my sister Karen. Although I have not tried, I can theoretically still speak in tongues. Tongues was interiority writ large. Mm -hmm. Right? And, you know, there's, I don't know how she does it, (laughs) because (laughs) the discourse of this book, the language of this book is clarity writ large. It's so beautifully, so beautifully wrought. It's so precise, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in its language. And yet I do retain the feeling that there is a kind of tongues being spoken here. There's a kind of numinousness, um, both in what's being withheld, but also in the idea that the clarity of this language registers at multiple levels. And there's a level at which um, it's very, very difficult to pinpoint what's happening, but it's acting on you, right? The same way Uh it might be when you're in the sort of context of someone speaking a different language. It's Uh very cool. It is very cool. (laughs) And I think it actually relates a little bit to, um, you know, as, as a writer, I, I'm also very interested 
in like how she does this, like the, yeah. the actual mechanics of how she's drawing us in, keeping us away, how yes. she moves us through the 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 book in this in this sort of beautiful way. And yeah. um, I think we talked about this a little before, but this idea of she she gives us enough where we feel like um, we are almost sort of like taking a memory from yeah. her and, yeah. and we're almost like remembering alongside of her. Yeah. So she like tells us in the beginning, um, she mentions her sister Karen's accident, but she mm-hmm. doesn't say what it is. Mm-hmm. Almost the same way that maybe a child like herself being born last mm-hmm. would know that something had happened, but maybe not know the full story mm-hmm. for years and we like her we enter we get a little bit of information and it grows over time and I think the way that she sort of imparts these small um, tidbits of memory but doesn't fully divulge right Mm -hmm. she's not saying she's not giving the secret she's not passing this information along she's just letting some of it out and we are putting it together over time I think there's just one moment that I really I had to put the book down because Mm -hmm. I could almost I ended up feeling a loss rather than her sharing a loss and there's this part in the book where she's describing her mother's fear of of lizards Mm -hmm. and how when a lizard would get into the house she would go over and get their neighbor miss octavia to come and like chase it out and eat just one little tiny lizard they would she would come and drag it out and bring it outside and her mother Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to feel easy or Mm -hmm. or calm in her home and until Mm -hmm. that was out and then um her um sarah's father and Ivory yeah. May's husband passes away. Yeah. Um, and the, where we start the next scene of the next movement of the book, which is about grief is with a house full of lizards. Mm-hmm. And those scenes so are good. so far yeah. apart. Yeah. They're so, but, but like having met Ivory May mm-hmm. and seeing her relationship to her space. And then mm-hmm. in the next moment, we just are in a house full of lizards. Yeah. It's like, I, you could feel the change that had to mean without yeah. her having to say anything about yeah. her mother or the space. And, and you just, you move through it with her. And I think that in these small ways, she almost brings us, she, she lets us remember with her. It's such a beautiful way you found to put that, right? That, that we remember with her, right? That we become endowed with her memory. It's, it's extraordinary. I think there's another example of that that you and I talked about that I, I didn't know if we would get to it, but I, it feels right based on what you just said. It's that moment where she withholds um, what happened in a particular house that had a lot of meaning for her but it's clear that something did happen. I'm seeing if I can find it right now. And something will happen. And something will happen. That's what it is. So this effect that you're describing of her being able to endow her reader with the particularity of a feeling without necessarily necessarily divulging the detail that wants to remain private, right? It's a very particular structure. And I think you're right that it's about a technique of interiority. Um, And I, the moment that you described of having to put the book, the book down, I had that moment with this moment when she says this, she's looking over at this across the street from her house. And she says, there would come a time when I would know very well the man who would stay in that house long after its charm had faded. Everything that I am writing here now leads to that. And that's all we get, right? We never it's almost like the lizard moment. It's not a moment that's returned to in any kind of specificity, but it's a moment that haunts for the rest of the story, precisely because she connects um, whatever feeling she's having about that memory to the act of writing itself, right? It's that Mm -hmm. infusion in the language um, of a certain kind of dread or disappointment, right? That we're able to take on its, its extraordinary craft. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what else about space <laughs> is happening here for you? I know, um, I know there's questions for you as a writer, as a poet, right, um, around technique, around self-fashioning. I know I've been obsessed with the way in which this book is like a house and is like, and is interested in the relationship between space and place, between physicality and the immaterial. Um, is there anything about self-fashioning and technique that relates to space for you when you think about this book? Well, I, I think the immediate thing that comes to mind is, is from that quote earlier where um, she's discussing what it means to have to, for her mother and many others to have to navigate the dualities of being Black in America. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she says, the house, unlike the clothes our mother had tailored to us, was an ungainly fit. Yeah. And I think that I, uh, an ungainly fit, yeah. um, that idea comes, even though this book is beautifully put together there is a like there's a self-fashioning and there's a constant tugging and a, and, a, and a trying to trying to work through it and a trying to navigate an ungainly fit yeah and I think that comes through maybe not necessarily in the writing itself but in the in what she chooses to show about mm-hmm. her own life mm-hmm. uh, yeah. her, and I yeah. know this is important for you like the, yeah. the type of the type of traveling she does yes. Yes. how she she's kind of almost as a character and as a as a writer leaving to return as if mm-hmm. as if the return would be different and and, and it will fit differently if mm-hmm. she returns so there's this sort of um a very diasporic way of being in the yeah. world of, of trying of trying to come always to come back never able to come back yeah. um and i think that 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 phrase ungainly fit has resonance so good so good i mean yeah it's so good i mean i you know we've talked about this we talked about it both in the context of the class which was a black diasporic class and then you and i have talked about this sort of as we were thinking about doing this conversation about how this book just fully embodies the black diasporic right structurally and in terms of its writing and you know it is precisely about this one black family in this very specific place new orleans new orleans east specifically and it is also at the same time about this one particular black person who is moving, right? So she's from, she's grounded and related to New Orleans, but then she's going to Texas, to California, Harlem. to New York, to Harlem, which has its own kinds of dense mm-hmm. representations around diaspora, to Burundi at another point. And what she's able to do so beautifully is in the tradition of black diasporic art, which is to show that there is a kind of dynamic tension of belonging and affinity and insistence of multiple places, right? That act upon a particular subject position so that um, many, many black people in the world do not get to choose that they have one place that they belong to, but they're constantly trying to sort through how multiple kinds of affinities make up who they are. Um, And so I love this idea of the kind of the, uh, the ungainly fit, the idea that one nation or one, um, one story, one city, um, despite it being yours. One right? name, right? One she name. has too many names <laughs> in, the, in the book and in her life. It's not the interior, many. the inside name, the outside name, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then also the inside the country, outside the country. Absolutely. So. And it's, um, you know, I... I, I am a diaspora scholar and I've had to explain what my field is to many people <laughs> a lot of times. Sometimes people seem to not understand what the word diaspora means. And I think this is such a wonderful book that one can just kind of offer as an example of what it means to feel as if one is both from one place and also displaced from that place, right? Mm-hmm. To feel as if the place that claims you maybe most closely is also the place where you can't live. 
mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary um, and painful and very, very idiosyncratic feeling to have. Um, that's very characteristic, actually, of Black life and Black life in America. Um, there's a moment when she's in Burundi that I, that I really want to point to because it's, it's such a beautiful way of thinking about that tension, right, between the place that you're from being the place where you can't be. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she, she's working for a nonprofit at the time. She says, my time in Burundi had helped me to place New Orleans in a more global context as part of the often neglected global South, where basic human rights of safety and security healthcare and decent housing go unmet. But the distance only clarified, it could not induce forgetting. My traveling to Burundi was my trying the the elasticity of the rubber band, pulling it all the way to the point where it should have broken, but it did not. The band snapped violently back and I found myself in the bowels of the city I left searching for. And, you know, at a plot level, this describes her discovering that actually she's not going to stay in Burundi and that that's not going to be the new place where she finds herself. And that, in fact, she's going to return to New Orleans and work there for a stint. But structurally and emotionally, I think what's moving about that is that um, what we know is that she doesn't stay in New Orleans, right? So she snaps violently back, finds work makes more roots, and then finds that she must leave again, right? Mm -hmm. And she's writing this book that is in some ways a sort of devotional love letter, as well as a critique and an exposure of this place that she's from, um, away from that place that she'd been snapped back to. I was just so, um, first of all, this is a very familiar (laughs) kind of procedure Mm -hmm. as someone who has belonged in multiple places, right? And has Mm -hmm. found that um, her excavation of the place that's sort of maybe most responsible for her, in my case, it's Kingston, Jamaica, um, that that investigation is happening when I'm furthest away from it, right? Mm -hmm. And that that sense of longing and that sense of um, insistence um, seems to occur precisely because I'm in California where not enough Jamaicans are, (laughs) where I can't get a good pathy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we have to go (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah there is a kind of um there's a subtlety with which she is handling some of these very classic themes right of diaspora um and and placing and placing new orleans which is a you know a gulf a gulf coast um place which is a place that has a very very rich history of black diasporic circulation um placing it in a context of post-colonial and diasporic belonging Mm -hmm. and um and politics that i think you know more and more people are beginning to understand about more and more places in the united states right which has often Mm -hmm. sort of been kept separate from some of these places so Mm -hmm. that's part of what i think the magic of this book is it's it's is its ability to um, unfold in a really delicate and subtle way some of these more traditional themes, right, of, of Black belonging and multiplicity, right, that some I would, artists are looking at. Yes, I would say that more than anything, the number of quotes I pulled that fit for diaspora is yeah. it's the largest category. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's two quotes that's, that speak to, um, one that speaks directly, I think, to what you're speaking about, about how distance is and isn't how you can be physically distant but have not moved at all and vice versa um she says it 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 is hard to to talk about returning to a place you have not psychically left Um, and so there's this sort of dilation of time and space that's happening for her and that is what it is to be in a diaspora especially the black diaspora that doesn't just move in terms of distance but also temporally across time um one of the moments that i really had to sit and think about 
why what she was saying resonated with me so strongly on so many different levels was when she was talking about what it was like to be in Harlem Mm -hmm. while Katrina was happening in New Orleans. And she said, I had only watched everything that happened from a distance. What right did I have to react this strongly? And I think that that made me think of my own experience. My my father and his whole family is from New Orleans. And so that brought me to the moment of being in Southern Virginia, watching my father, watch the TV, watching him panic and feeling this distance, not just between myself and New Orleans, but myself and my father um, and watching him navigate his distance, but also what it means to be in the diaspora and to encounter moments in history. Um, there are many times where I'll, I'll read a book, a textbook, and read about something that has happened years in the past, and I will react to it <laughs> so strongly. And you have that moment of thinking, what right do I have to react this strongly? I, who am only watching this from a distance. And I think that that speaks to a lot of a diasporic being mm-hmm. um, when your place in the world has shifted and your family's place in the world has shifted, but maybe your identity in the world has not, and you're navigating sort of all of these different times and spaces um, from a single point, which is yourself. And that is, I mean, yes, that is an ungainly fit that's hard to navigate. And a lot of this book is about navigation. Yeah. It's so powerful what you're saying. I mean, what you're describing is the sort of spatiality of kinship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this idea and the, temporality. Of, and the temporality of kinship. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a book that you know, some people call a memoir, and it begins three generations before Sarah Broom is even born, right? Mm -hmm. With her describing what she calls the world that made me. And so what you're describing of watching your father watching his city, right? And you're feeling this kind of, I I want to call it a kind of secondary or tertiary trauma, but it's, it's much more direct than that, right? It's as if you're right there with him, Um, has everything to do with an experience of kinship that can be really hard to describe. And that's very, very potent as it pertains to questions of blackness and Mm -hmm. and black diaspora, as you're saying, precisely because of the mobility and displacement that's occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, I'm actually just thinking there's a quote where she, she gets at some of this. Um, It's this um, relationship between the space of a city or a house that's destroyed and the space of a family and a body and a person and how those things can collapse into each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says, oh, goodness, I've lost it. <laughs> oh, here it is. Yeah, she's, she's thinking about um, the house again. And she says, I had no home. Mine had fallen all the way down. I understood then that the place I never wanted to claim, in fact, had been containing me. We own what belongs to us, whether we claim it or not. When the house fell down, it can be said, something in me opened up. I was now the house. Mm. Right? Um, And so it's this thing about, it's relating to this question of time for me that you're bringing up, because it's this thing about whether or not you're at that moment inhabiting the place that is being taken away, whether or not you were there when it was built, (laughs) right? whether or not you were there when your mother was being enfolded in the embrace of this kind of maternal line of extended kin that made her um, in New Orleans, whether or not you were there, you are somehow, that feeling is transferred to you. And that claim, right, of those women and of that house is made upon you regardless or not, whether you want it or not, 
so that its destruction, the pain it feels, the violation it feels becomes your pain, your violation. And part of what feels really courageous about this book is that it is possible to turn away from that claim, right? And to try and ignore that trauma and to try and ignore um, the accountability, right? That you can have to those feelings. And what's so courageous about the book is that Broom doesn't turn away, right? That she um, is displaced for sure. She's in a different spatial and temporal um, position, but she, she feels the claim of that home and of that family, and um, and she takes it up right as mm-hmm. her responsibility to voice. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a beautiful model of the work that art does, right? In the context mm-hmm. of political trauma. Mm-hmm. Yes, she, she doesn't. The house falls all the way down, but in some way they don't allow it to fall all the way down. I mean, the title of this book is the Yellow House, and in so many ways, this is what is left. Um, and she does make it again in a way that can't be destroyed in the same fashion um oh my god really... it can't be destroyed adriana that's so, that's so important. <laughs> i'm sorry that was it can't be taken away right it can't be taken yes, away. yes not certainly not not the same way that it was before it's not yeah. vulnerable to the same things because um, i mean and that's sort of part of the black diaspora too the worst has happened mm-hmm. and and everything else is is yes i i think fred moton says this the ships have already arrived like the 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 sci-fi disaster the apocalypse Mm -hmm. has happened it happened Mm -hmm. and everything after this is the living and i think um there's this moment where she describes her relationship to her family and i think this is so much of what it feels like to be you know in this time relating to past time so she says when you are the babyest in a family with 11 <laughs> older points of view, all variations of the communal story, developing your own becomes a matter of survival. There can be, in this scenario, no neutral ground. And I think of African-American history, African diasporic history as what is like as an 11th child yeah. <laughs> coming in. So far after the fact, so we're, we're all here trying to compete with all of these other points of view. And what does it mean? I, I think that's it's so important that she says there is no neutral ground in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're right. Some people can think that there is a neutral ground and turn away, but she's actually saying there isn't mm-hmm. a neutral ground. And, and what will we do with that? So with good. That, so good. Opinion. What I also love about that, right, is that she's so clear, right, that her work is to write. Her, her work is to render the home in, in words, in language. Um, but she's also really, really clear about what Carl's work is, her older brother, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we'll remember, we're given many visions of Carl sitting and watching the land after the home has been taken. As away. if at a wake, yes. He, As he, if at a wake, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, she, and she's able to sort of evoke his, the, the, the aesthetic and emotional labor that he does on the part of the home, which looks different from hers, but is, mm-hmm. but is real. And she's able to evoke the aesthetic and emotional labor of her mother's tongue, right? She's so um, curious about and careful with her mother's words and is so aware that her mother too is an artist, right? Who is mm-hmm. rendering the subjectivity and the history of this family and this life world, right? Mm-hmm. So that she sets down all of those interviews. She sets down with great transcriptive detail, everything her mother says in exactly the way her mother says it, because she has a sense that though she, Sarah Broom, is the writer, she is not the only artist, right, in this family. And that well, it's her, her mother's house. And I think there is this 
respect and this sort Absolutely. of yes because all she does she, you you will see her have a page of dialogue and her mother is in the room of that dialogue but her mother's words are in italics mm-hmm. and there's something about that similar to the epigraphs in her piece that it's almost like her mother's voice is presented as archival material as a material Absolutely. object Absolutely. as is Absolutely. um and and yes i think it's because her mother is the house is the house her mother this is her mother's house and also her mother is the house. And her mother is the house. Her, her, yeah. mother, her mother's attentiveness to language and aesthetics comes from being raised in a home of Black women who attended to the aesthetics of cooking, the aesthetics of the body, the aesthetics of the curtains, right? That there's a real care um, and lineage that Broom is sort of suturing, right? Um, that that is so respectful of the different ways in which history and art get made. And, um, and also the multiplicity of vocality, right? I think we, you and I talked about this and we actually talked about this in the class as well. There's a tradition, Julie Dash, we, Julie Dash's um, Doctors of the Dust is a film we read alongside this, this book. And we were really interested in that class, I think, to think about um, what the possibilities of narration are, right? If you displace the idea of the sort of singular genius <laughs> through whom the whole story comes. And in both of these texts, in Julie Dash and Sarah Broom and many others, right? Um, we get this idea that to tell a story of, of Black life and Black survival in diaspora is to sort of draw on resources that are multiple, that are polyvocal, um, that that decenter any notion that any one person, right, can tell the story on their own. And um, again, what seems to me almost quasi-mystical about this book is the idea that it can have, on the one hand, such a strong and clear aesthetic voice, and on the other, yield itself very undefensively, right, to the voices and to the aesthetics of other people um, in order to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was watching a clip of her speaking, and she said that she was balancing some of the um, tension between representing other people and being the youngest and, yeah. and being the one to write the, 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 sto- the story of the family. And she said that she put herself on the line mm-hmm. as much, if not more than everyone else. And I, that double play of putting oneself on the line, not just in terms of being your vulnerability, vulnerability, but how often you put yourself on a page yeah. and what, where is that line? And, mm-hmm. and I think that was a really important way that she navigated that. And also this idea of time, right? Mm-hmm. In one hand, most narrators, they narrate in, in real time, right? Yeah. In the real time of the story, but she yeah. narrates before her birth. That's right. And so this idea of like, what is real time? What is traditional time? Like she yes. plays with that as a way to sort of navigate responsibility. Um, and, and yeah. As, as does Dash, right? So that Daughters of the Dust is... Yes, is exactly. It's the same child. Child. Yeah. a young girl <laughs> narrating before her birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so beautiful. A whole tradition of sort of Black feminist art. Yeah. Um, well, we are, I think, coming close to that moment where we start to, to, to summarize and to draw to a close. Um, where, where would you mm. want to sort of land up? I know it's a, it's a very hard question. <laughs> this is a very rich mm. tapestry of a book. Um, you know, I, I think maybe, maybe I would end with, with where it starts, which is the epigraph. Um, you, you drew our attention to the fact that she's um, such a citational writer, that she's pulling from so many um, writers and artists that come before her and walk alongside her. And um, again, as a diasporic scholar, I was so, I'm just so thrilled every time I see her cite another black diasporic writer um, who's wrestling with questions of place. And so 
the epigraph of this book begins with um, a citation from a poem by Kai Miller, whose book, right, the cartographer tries to map his way to Zion was a book we also studied together mm. in this class. And so it was this wonderful sort of surprise to have these two things together. And um, Miller's poem uh, has these lines that Broom quotes. She says, or he says, draw me a map of what you see, then I will draw you a map of what you never see. And guess whose map will be bigger than whose, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm left with this idea that somehow Broom has, able to, has been able to draw a map that is both visible and invisible, right? That she has mm -hmm. painstakingly evoked the material details of, of a place, of New Orleans, of New Orleans East. But um, she has also at the same time rendered the sort of invisible, numinous power and property of the life of a Black family, right? And of a, mm -hmm. and of a young girl coming into her aesthetic voice um, in a way that, uh, that just balances together so beautifully. So that's probably where I would end. That's beautiful. I think um, my, my last thoughts about this book at the moment, because I'm sure I'll have more, are about um, just what it's taught me um, and what it has the capacity to teach others about navigating um, the diaspora and, and, and this country um, and the many other countries like it. Um, and she says, I, I watched this clip of her basically talking about what it was like to live in quarantine. And she was, Sarah Broom was saying, um, you know, I've been time traveling with all my books, uh, yeah. um, time, time and place traveling. And I think, I think that she really does that. I mean, she time travels. She, she goes to before she was born. She goes to uh, different places in the world in her writing and in physically and relates that to us. And I just, I think she makes it so clear that writing is a navigational tool. It is a self-fashioning tool. It is a tool um, that she uses so actively. And I think as a sort of, um, practical takeaway no matter who we are I think if, if we if, if we so choose writing can be a way for us to navigate um, an ungainly fit that is a country or a home or a city or whatever self has been imposed upon us on a particular day and so I appreciate her for speaking to writing as uh, as a tool um, so so clearly throughout the text so beautiful thank you so much Adriana this has been extraordinary I love being in the world of this book and it's been great to share that with you one more time. Yes. Even though we are socially distant, it's been so nice to be able to, yeah, to make a way. <laughs> Will we ever be in a room with another person again? Who knows? We don't. <laughs> but you know, Sarah Broom is talking. We have books. Exactly. We can sort of build a room yep. without needing to sort of. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. And thank you to everyone who's been able to, to watch this. Thank you to the Townsend Center for hosting this conversation. It's been our pleasure to be a part of it. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.